This is ARRL's Eclectic Tech, a bi-weekly look at the technical and scientific side of amateur radio with your host Steve Ford, WB8IMY. Eclectic Tech is brought to you by ICOM. ICOM, for the love of ham radio, is about the passion for an incredible hobby. Visit ICOM in the community webpage at www.icomamerica.com forward slash community. I'm speaking with Pete Friedrichs, AC7ZL, and I was about to say good afternoon, but it's good morning, your time, right? Uh, it's 11 o'clock here, so I'll, I'll call that afternoon. Pete has produced a number of books uh, over the last well, few decades uh, that I've been aware of, and he's just released a new one. And uh, in fact, I happen to have a copy of it right here. It's titled Marvelous Magnetic Machines. And uh, when did this come out, Pete? How how new is it? Uh, within the last year. Okay. The, the I began the manuscript for it uh, some time back, but uh, on the encouragement of Artisan Ideas, the publisher, they had been dealing uh, as a distributor in my other books, and they said, "Hey, when's the next book coming out?" And I said, "Well, um, there's a there's a bun in the oven, but it's not ready." And they said, "Well, listen, if you complete that work, um, we would like to publish it." And so uh, that's how that kind of came about. That's unusual to hear from a publisher actually seeking you out these days. When I worked on that side of the industry, uh, usually the books all came to us. We didn't normally seek them out unless it was an author who sold very well for us, which you must be. Uh, Yeah, my prior books, uh, um, they've had a surprising reception um, for, for books on admittedly niche topics. I mean, we're not talking Tom Clancy novels here, but um, for homebrew books on niche topics, they've done surprisingly well. Now, I want to address the authorship. If somebody goes looking for your books, in the one in front of me here, it's H.P. Friedrichs. So can you explain that? Yes. So so um, my given name's Hans Peter Friedrichs. Um, I sign most everything H.P. Friedrichs. And then the people that know me personally know me as Pete. If you're out looking for his books, look for HP, and you'll find it much easier that way. Before we get into uh, Marvelous Magnetic Machines, you mentioned something just a second ago, Pete, that, uh, that'll help me set the stage for this. And you, you use the word homebrewing. And as I'm sure you know very well, in amateur radio circles, homebrewing can be defined in a number of different ways, depending on who's talking. For example, if I purchase a kit, say a transceiver kit, and I put that kit together, I might say, oh, well, I homebrewed this. Others will say, well, true homebrewing is when you see a schematic for a project in a magazine like QST, and you source the parts, and you get the printed circuit board from whoever's distributing it, and you put that together and you test it. That's homebrewing. And then there is another layer, if you want to call it that, of people that will say, no, 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 no. You have to design the item. You have to oh, use circuit simulating software, something like that, design the item, assemble it, test it, tweak it. That, and only that, is true homebrewing. But in your books, you've taken this to yet another level that I like to call extreme homebrewing. Would that be a a fair assessment? 
Yeah, I'd, I'd say so. It's a little bit off the beaten path. You're not going out uh, and buying parts from a hobby store or something like that. You're certainly not buying kits. You're, you're fabricating, in the case of your most recent book, these motors from the ground up, pretty much. Yes, yes, that's true. And and I guess it might be worthwhile to explore the genesis of all of this because I kind of fell into this accidentally. I've always been interested in electronics and science and that sort of thing. And um, crystal radio is one of those things that's an interest to a lot of people. And if you look out on the Internet or you consider all the books that have been published over over the decades, there are there are literally thousands of crystal radio projects. Right. It's It's one of those things that everyone who enters the electronics world seems to cut their teeth on at some point, right? And yes. if, if you look at these projects, one of the things I, I always found, I don't know, I guess annoying, is that you would wind this coil or you would build this or you'd build that, but invariably the project always ended up with, then you need to buy a pair of high impedance headphones, okay? That's yes. a problem because whereas maybe in the 1950s or 1960s, you might still have been able to go to a Radio Shack or a hardware store and buy a set of high-impedance headphones, that pretty much ended in the 70s, you know, with audiophile headphones. Those, I guess, are probably tended to be 8-ohm type headphones. And then in the 1980s or 90s, where you have the little Walkman-style things, the kinds of headphones you can actually purchase or get your hands on are not high impedance headphones anymore. So that kind of renders moot this entire uh, empire of projects, right? Yes. And we kind of got this weird idea. It would be an interesting challenge to see not if I not only that if I could build build that, but build everything. Like basically limit myself to you know nuts and screws and hardware store items. I, I would allow myself wire. I will allow myself the kinds of things that anyone might find in a garbage can at home. Could I could I build a functional radio that way? And it turns out that I could. So I had designed my own variable capacitors with roofing metal and and uh, protractor dials and 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 made these little instruments, tuning coils, of course, um, mechanical arrangements to hold um, pyrite crystals uh, to affect a detector or a diode for a receiver, and then the and then the biggest. The, the thing that was the genesis of all of this was the headphone thing. I actually built three three different ones, two electromagnetic headphones, and one is actually based on the Peso crystal that is removed from an electronic cigarette lighter, okay? So <laughs> basically, I, I satisfied the challenge. I tried to build some nice-looking equipment, and and then, I, and then I kind of fell into the next step. Well, I'll document this, right? So I wrote a manuscript about it. I took some pictures, and... I ended up uh, talking. Do you remember Lindsay books? Oh, yes. Years ago. Yeah. So I, I talked to TJ Lindsay about this. He was very interested in it. And in fact, he gave me, um, I knew nothing about publishing. And so he gave me a lot of insight as to how to properly format things and what, what is an affordable way to do to, to contract printing and do this, all this other stuff. And so I ended up producing this book and it, and it was shockingly successful. Um, I mean, I liked it. Uh, I wrote the kind of book that I thought I would like to have seen on a library shelf, right? But I didn't do any market research or anything like that, and and it was very successful. And I and I learned some important lessons from that. If I mention a, a a skeleton watch, a pocket watch, do you know what I'm talking about? No. Some pocket watches, you know, normally they're enclosed, but skeleton watches they'll actually have a crystal on the backside, so you can see the internals. You okay. can see the little equipment moving and the wheels moving. 
And one of the things about that is if you hand one of those to anyone, I don't care if it's an accountant, I don't care if it's a gardener, I don't care, I don't care what their mechanical predispositions are or whatever, people cannot help but be drawn into that and at least briefly study what's going on in there. So there's there is an aesthetic and a beauty to a mechanism like that that draws people into it, right? And that's one of the things that I submit is sorely lacking in in a lot of modern technology, okay? Let me be clear, I'm not a caveman. I'm not suggesting we all go back to vacuum tubes. But if you pick up your average uh, microprocessor chip, it's a boring piece of black plastic. There's nothing inspiring about it. And, And part of the problem with it is despite all the wonderful and magical things it can do, it requires a significant investment to get to the point where you can even appreciate what it can do, right? It doesn't bootstrap you into wanting to learn more about it the way the skeleton pocket watch can. And this was something that I observed when I did my first book because of the the way that I presented the projects and the things that I built. There were people that had no interest in electronics at all that would be looking at these things and go and, and want to handle them and want to look at them, right? Yes. That was one of the the um, walkaways or lessons that I learned from that. I followed that uh, later with another book called Instruments of Amplification. Um, That is a book not about building amplifiers, but it's kind of a study of amplifying devices themselves. And again, there's a number of projects in there. There's electromechanical amplifiers. There are some homemade vacuum tubes made from glass ashtrays and bits of wire. Uh, there's a, some experimental homemade transistors, some point contact transistors, and then some experimental cuprous oxide transistors that, that are made, again, with the stuff you can find in the average you know, garden shed chemicals, hardware store pieces and parts. And the book is about first principles. And, and it, again, the projects are all um, presented with this aesthetic that I mentioned. Again, this is not, a, a, again, a Tom Clancy undertaking but between those two books there's about 12,000 of those books in circulation now they've been extremely well received the one that caught me was instruments of amplification because what i when i first looked through it i thought oh my gosh this guy is actually making his own vacuum tubes he's not just buying them off the shelf he's actually manufacturing vacuum tubes you know what an incredible thing yeah and i think uh now to be clear these aren't the the tubes that we make, you know, through this book, these aren't you're not manufacturing them in the sense that you are then going to plug them into your guitar amplifier or and, and use them in that fashion, right? They're um, dem, um, principal demonstrators, right? So they're they're laboratory type things that show you um, how these processes work. But but what they do do is they again the aesthetics are inspiring. And they, they draw you in and they make you see that these different scientific principles are accessible. They're not magic that, that is only there for the you know high priests of technology to manipulate. They're, 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 they're accessible and they're understandable. And the other thing about I would point out about these two books, because this is a, as a preface to, to my new book, is neither of these books are cookbooks. Cookbooks are great. Uh, I have a whole library of reference in cookbooks. But what what these are about is teaching first principle and about um, there's a strong Elmering ethic in these books. I think they kind of give you the ability to sort of just hang out with me while we discuss 
what choices are made and why why we would do things this way versus that way and why I would use this material versus that material. So there's a lot of um, a lot of Elmering that's kind of implicit in the books, the, the first two books. Getting back to uh, marvelous magnetic machines, uh, which I recall from the prior two books, uh, it, it follows on perfectly. In fact, exactly in what you're saying. The first thing I went to, of course, I looked at the cover, and there is the Christmas motor on the cover. And so I had to read that article. I had to skip ahead or read that section, if you will. And incredibly, uh, here here we go again, extreme homebrewing. It looks like a radial engine, the old uh, aircraft radial engine. And you you fashioned this motor, I think... One of the few things that you might have bought offline uh, was maybe the solenoids. Is that correct? Yeah, the solenoids themselves I bought through Surplus. And the reason I did in that occasion is because they were a matched set. I want I wanted all of the cylinders to look the same. But uh, yeah, so the crankcase for this motor is, a I think, a one-quart saucepan. Um, the front bearing support is actually a, um, a candle holder, part of a the brass casting for a candle holder. Um, the base is, is an old awards plaque. Um, basically, everything in there is repurposed junk. A lot of stuff from the Goodwill store, a lot of stuff from the you know the, in the kitchen or the hardware store, or little pieces and parts. And yes, Marvelous Magnetic Machines is is fits very much in the same vein as the prior books. One of the things that I arguments I was trying to make. Or present in that book is that when normally when you talk about really nice machinery the implication is that you're going to need a lathe or you might need a mill or you might need a substantial investment in in good machine tools to kind of make the parts that you need and one of the messages of marvelous magnetic machines is that that's not necessarily true it's nice if you have those tools but um, sometimes through uh, judicious uh, garbage can picking and through the choices you make, you can work your way around um, the deficiencies implicit in hand tools and still get something that looks very attractive and very polished and finished. And it's just a matter of scrounging ability and creative thinking. You mentioned, I believe, that I think almost all of the projects in Marvelous Magnetic Machines were assembled using hand tools. Yes. Yes, that is true. So somebody doesn't need to have access to a sophisticated metal working shop no absolutely not now if you if you do um that that makes can make life easier for you and there are more extravagant things that you you could do but um yeah i think i think the machines themselves uh, or speak for themselves in terms of the um, accessibility of these sorts of designs to people with just ordinary tools and while you say it's not a cookbook it is very well illustrated. In fact, I would tend to guess that somebody could follow what you've done, follow the illustrations, and assemble what you've created. Would that be accurate? Oh, without a doubt. But you see, the, the key to this is, or the, where this differs from a, a cookbook, is the cookbook will typically say, this is what you need, and this is how you put it together. I think a lot of what my books do is describe not what piece you need, but what the first principal function of that piece is and what its relationship is to the other pieces. That's a different way of presenting the information. If you know what, if you know what the principal purpose of the part is and what its relationship 
is to the others, then what that does is frees you up to do substitution, right? If you're simply working off a parts list and you don't really understand why that part was chosen and you can't get that part, that's a game over scenario. But if you understand the relationship of that part to the other parts, then you can substitute and you can and you can play. So I go into a lot of detail about why, I, uh, again, it gets to this Elmering thing where I could imagine someone standing next to me and saying, well, why did you make it that length? You know, why did you drill that hole there? So there's a lot of discussions in the book that explain the decision making process and why. I do recall seeing discussions of electromagnetism. So you you pause to discuss not just the parts and the components and how they're going together, but also how they are actually functioning electromechanically. Is that right? Right, because there are, um, as they say, the devil lies in the details. And so um, a lot of times how you position parts with respect to other parts matters um, in terms of, uh, let's say, a magnet's ability to influence force on another part. So there's discussions of that kind of thing. There's discussions about poles. Um, some of the motors, for example, let, let, let me go down this path. The different motors address different strategies, uh, historical strategies for, for making motion with electromag electromagnetism. So early on, when we first started playing with electromagnets, we were still kind of in the steam age. And so a lot of early prototype motors were reciprocating linear type actuators with a crank. The worldview was about steam engines with a piston and a crank. And so the first electric motors modeled that or mirrored that. Um, so a num some of the motors in this book are reciprocating type motors with a crank. One of the motors is a DC brush motor, which would be very common in appliances and that sort of thing. Now, um, there's a design for a motor in there that is a brushless DC motor. That is an interesting design because that basically demonstrates how uh, the brushless DC motors in modern electric vehicles work or the brushless DC motor in a hard drive or in a um, computer cooling fan, right? So there are projects that are representative of the different technological approaches to making a shaft spin with, with electromagnetism. It occurred to me that these books not just your most recent, but all of them, could be excellent teaching materials uh, at the college level, perhaps even at the high school level. Are you aware of anybody who's using your books in that fashion? Marvelous Magnetic Machines has gone off to some university libraries. And I do know there was a uh, bulletin of, um, among some teachers group a number of years ago that was using uh, Voice of the Crystal in the classroom. So it, it's possible that some people are using them that way. Well, that would make sense, definitely. Well, I want to uh, tell listeners where they can find Marvelous Magnetic Machines and your other books. And I know that your publisher, Artisan Ideas, has their website that they sell directly from. And that's www.artisan, A-R-T-I-S-A-N-Ideas, all one word, dot com. And your books are also available on uh, Amazon, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? They show up on Amazon. They show up on eBay. Um, but my principal, uh, in fact, you can even get them over in the UK um, from some dealers. But my principal dealer is Artisan Ideas. And actually, for anyone who likes uh, different kinds of craft work, uh, Artisan Ideas is a, is a great publisher because they have a whole library of interesting things, not just radio and electronics, but, but uh, metalworking and knife making and leather work and all sorts of crafts that 
would interest somebody who likes to homebrew things. Well, Pete, congratulations on your new book. I hope it does well. I will look forward to seeing more from you, I hope. Uh, I hope so, too. And thank you very much for this opportunity. I'm glad we, uh, I've known you for a long time, but this is the first opportunity I've had to actually speak with you. Well, thank you, Pete. It's been a pleasure. You have a good afternoon. Tune in again for the next episode of Eclectic Tech, produced by ARRL, the National Association for Amateur Radio. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. If you have comments, email eclectic at arrl.org. This episode is copyright ARRL and all rights are reserved. I'm Sabrina Jackson, KC1JMW. See you next time.